hey all, uh, I usually don't do trigger warnings, but um, just a heads up, at some point in this podcast, we do talk about boogers, hawking loogies in rather graphic terms. So if you plan to, for some reason, enjoy this podcast while you're eating a nice meal, or maybe something like uh, French-Canadian split pea soup, uh, don't. You've been warned. And welcome back to another installment of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer. Boy, this might be the first time in years, practically a generation. I think I've had two guests on at, at once. Um, so, um, you know, the real person I'm having on is uh, Donal Donal Gill, right? Okay, and then uh, and um, and then your 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 brother Keon Keon Gill. You both share the same last name, right? Because you're brothers. So, Keon Keon Gill, right? And uh, now. Uh, Keon, you are probably best known. Uh, you're the host of a wide Atlantic weird podcast. Did I get that right? Yep. That's it. So I, I do the wide Atlantic weird show and it's, um, I, I call it the Irish Fortean show. That's critical, not cynical. So I like, like Fortean stuff. I like mysteries. I like cryptozoology, that sort of thing. But every once in a while I do something off topic and I often get my brother Donald in on this one. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's fun to st- stray away from the usual topic sometimes. And we have done a number of episodes about wrestling, which is one of his one of his one of the areas in which he's extremely knowledgeable. And we've done some stuff about um, Kiss. We love Kiss as well. Right, and right. something I've noticed is that a lot of the people working in, in the area that I cover on my show, who, whose work I really respect and, and, and people I look up to, they, they really like these kind of silly off topic episodes, which has been astonishing to to me. Like, I mean, to me, they're always great fun, but they're a bit of a, a side project. And yet they've they've gone down really, really well. So we've had lo- I've had lots of messages from people who, you know, I, I would see as quite serious commentators in the world of of the paranormal or, or the world of the, of the of skepticism. And they've they always ask me about these episodes. So it'll, it'll be fun to cover this topic today. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Your 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 podcast. Uh, your podcast it's it's it is such a great podcast what one because you are like you say you're skeptical not cynical i think it was that was that your tagline and, i usually uh, say critical but not cynical but sorry critical gets a little bit harder gets a little bit harder every year yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah no i know i appreciate that but yeah but you haven't just sort of sunk down to the you don't do a lot of shouting on your show which is really nice and, and you cover <laughs> like a really wide i mean maybe it's implied a bit in the podcast name really wide uh topics i mean everything from cryptids to ufos to sea monsters to sir arthur conan doyle and of course um you you and your brother uh Donal, you, you did. Uh, you, you've done at least two series on wrestling. Is that or we more? We did three episodes, okay. and we broke. We took the life of Hulk Hogan, <laughs> right? Yes, and we made it. We made three episodes about it. Yeah, yeah, and I, and that I, again, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of wrestling, but uh, those are. I mean, those are some of my favorite shows, just because. One, Donal, you, you know. When people know what they're talking about, it just makes for great. You know, it just makes for great listening. And and yeah, you guys, uh, you, you sort of dissected the whole. Um, uh, I, I believe his his autobiography. Maybe put in air quotes there, autobiography. <laughs> and uh, 
and I think he did a three three part show, but but yeah, but but what I really wanted to have um, uh, you guys on for is what one you know, uh, Ken, I kind of want to you know introduce my listeners to your awesome podcast, but you're kind you're kind of dialing it back a bit now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, life's been busy, and um, I, I like I think like a lot of folks during COVID, you know, um, I had right. time to de- to put a lot of effort into some personal projects and. The podcast already existed, but I, I had the time to really bring it up to a level I was really pleased with. I was getting a lot of reading done, a lot of research done, and um, I was lucky enough to have some really high-level guests. And I found that once you get a few good people on, um, it, it becomes easier to get more and more. And um, and now it feels like a bit of a tale where I do get episodes out, but I choose them very carefully. I choose my topics carefully because, you know, it takes. I, I'm lucky if I get one a month at the moment, right, just okay. because again, I like I like to have them up to scratch. I like to have the research up to scratch and the editing and everything. So I'm I'm still going, but um, it's just a different phase, I suppose. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and I probably didn't even introduce it. You 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 yourself. You are in. You like to say you are someplace in southeastern. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm I'm Ireland. I'm in Kilkenny. I don't mind oh, being. Oh, okay. I, I'm a little <laughs> bit coy on the show, but okay. Um, All right then. And, I'm and in Kilkenny. Yeah. And, and Donald, you are uh, you're probably in my third favorite city in the world. Where, where are you? I am in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in uh, I grew up in Montreal my, myself. My spent my boyhood there, and my my um, um, stepmother she is uh, she's she's still still there. My my dad my dad was a professor at McGill, but uh, he, he passed away a few years ago. But uh, yeah, so I do I do love montreal uh donald have you had uh i mean there are really like two signature dishes in montreal you got your smoked meat and um sorry three signature dishes smoked meat uh uh you you have uh your um cheesecake and uh steamies have have you have you enjoyed any of those three I've definitely had plenty of smoked meat in my time. Uh, I've had a few steamies, but uh, I have to find they don't quite live up to the hype. Oh, okay. Um, but I, did, I wasn't even aware, actually, that cheesecake was a particularly Montreal thing. I mean, I have had cheesecake in Montreal, but it was never right. sold to me as though, like, now this is a rite of passage. You are becoming a, oh, a member okay. of the clan by sharing <laughs> in this mighty dish. All right. Yeah. Oh, how could I forget Montreal style bagels? That's the other. Uh, that's the, the four. The two. The two things I was expecting you to say were the the Saint yeah. Theater bagels and uh, poutine. 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 Right? Yeah. You know, I because I, I lived in Montreal in the seventies. I don't ever recall once having poutine in in Montreal. It seemed to me like when I came to Ontario, it became, it was like that. That's all they talked about was poutine. I I don't know, but, but yeah, I, I, I'm sure it's a, maybe it's like pizza, you know, where it was like kind of more of an uh, American thing that then the, the Italians sort of back adopted, you know, like, I, I I don't know, but yeah. Like St. Patrick's day for, for us Irish, it was really much more of a North American thing. And then uh, at some point, Irish people in Ireland said, what do those Irish people in America know that we don't know about ourselves? So I guess we better start doing it, too. Exactly. Yeah. The uh, uh, yeah, the kind of a, you know, the, the, can't criticize people for trying to earn a legit buck in the tourist industry. Right. So uh, C- certainly not. Yeah. All right. our, our, our an illegitimate buck. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> those get accepted, too. All right. Yeah. So I, I was working on, um, I'm working on my second book. I wrote a book called the, the skeptics book of lists. And now I'm kind of working on my, my, 
uh, second one, which is now the Conspiracy Skeptics Book of Lists, which is more kind of focused on conspiracies. And, I, you know, I got a whole section on sports conspiracies. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can see me. I'm not exactly what you call particularly athletic inclined type of person. But, uh, you know, but I'm like, well, I guess I got to do something on sports conspiracies. And I'm all, you know, I'm breaking down by you know, soccer and baseball. And I come to pro wrestling and then I start delving into pro wrestling and and I took you know some inspiration from from uh from uh from your 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 episodes but but I encountered this thing it was called the the Montreal screw job and and I'm like okay I know who to I this is a pod this is a conspiracy skeptic podcast and I know who exactly to call so yeah so what is what is the Montreal screw job I I and coming to someone who is in Montreal, you, I mean, you can get right down to the primary sources, can't you? Indeed, yeah. Um, so the Montreal Screwjob is is something that can take a lot of explanation, and I'm, hopefully we'll will kind of unfurl some of the you know the the various aspects of it all. In a, but in, in really 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 basic terms, um, Montreal Screwjob happened in November 1997. It was a match between Bret the Hitman Hart and the Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels. This was the main event of a pay-per-view event called Survivor Series. And, of course, professional wrestling uh, is fake. The outcomes are predetermined. Uh, <laughs> yeah, spoilers indeed, yeah. <laughs> um, and the finishes are determined in advance. If, and the performers or wrestlers, what have you, cooperate with each other in the ring to make it look like a struggle, to make it look like a fight, but, of course... You know, nobody is going up for a body slam that they haven't already agreed to, right? Because they jump up, they put their hand on their opponent's hip to balance out the weight. All these kinds of things. Anyway, in the the event, uh, the Survivor Series 1997, Bret Hart was supposed to, I'm going to use some wrestling parlance here, go over Shawn Michaels, which means he was going to win. Um, and instead, what happened was, in the match, after... 17 to 18, I think, minutes of pretty good wrestling. It was a good quality match. Two excellent, very, very highly rated, celebrated performers. Uh, about the 17, 18 minute mark, Shawn Michaels put Bret Hart into Bret Hart's own signature finishing move, the sharpshooters. It's a submission hold, kind of like a leg lock of sorts. And this was not in the kind of quote unquote match script. And then within seconds of this move being applied, the referee, Earl Hebner, gestured to the timekeeper to ring the bell that the match was over that Bret Hart had submitted. And Bret Hart instantly knew what this meant. It was, in his terms, he had been screwed. And the owner of the World Wrestling Federation, as it was called at that time, Vince McMahon, who's also the booker, that's the person who decides the creative storylines and the general direction, the man with the pencil, again, to use further wrestling parlance, he runs out immediately to try to deflect some of the, again, more wrestling parlance, heat onto him. Brett knows exactly what's happening, goes into a furore. Um, and from that point onwards, uh, kind of people talk about it for years and years and years in terms of who was right, who was wrong, um, what exactly happened, who knew what at what time, who was in on it, who wasn't. Um, and basically in the um, close to 30 years since, you have people who are on various people's sides, people who think that Bret Hart was, is kind of like a, you know, a white knight who was uh, pure and, and got sc screwed over by 
um, a paranoid and um, power mad promoter and a narcissistic opponent is Shawn Michaels. And you've got other people who say Shawn Michaels has to do whatever he can to protect how he looks in the eyes of the fans. And Vince McMahon had to protect the integrity of the title. And all of this is because Bret Hart was leaving the World Wrestling Federation and going to World Championship Wrestling the next month. And there was a big furore about backstage about whether or not Bret Hart should be losing on his way out or would he defeat Shawn Michaels and then surrender the belt or lose to someone else. And there's this, again, perspective that the tradition in wrestling is that you do your honors on the way out of the territory. So the territory is, you know, the part of the country where a given promoter would run. And if you're leaving that territory, you have to go out on your back counting the lights. So you get pinned one, two, three in order to transfer whatever legitimacy you have onto uh, the person who beats you because you're not going to be there anymore. And so the people who would defend Vince McMahon and Shawn Michaels in all of this would say that Bret Hart refused to go out the time honored way. This is the there's all these these things get repeated in this same terms all the time. So Bret Hart refused to go out in his back. He refused to do the time honored tradition, et cetera, et cetera. And whereas other people would say then on the other side of it that Vince McMahon lied to Bret Bret Hart because he sold him a finish in the match. He didn't communicate with him and he made him look like a fool uh, again on pay-per-view in front of hundreds of thousands of viewers and for all history's time. And a lot of this is to, to do with the personal animosity that built up between Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart over especially the, the year leading up to all this. The entire year of 1997 was a, was kind of um, a pressure cooker of intensity where Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart were both kind of vying for the number one spot in the company. And there's often this, this kind of tension in wrestling that can be very um, lucrative creatively where when two performers have genuine heat with each other, they don't like each other in real life, that can create for great in-ring chemistry and all of that. But it can also kind of spill over and turn something that should be people working together cooperatively to, you know, sell tickets and earn money and all the rest of it. And it can turn into something that's a little bit more real. So in to, to get to the kind of the conspiracy theory element of all of this, in wrestling, most things... In fact, 99% of things are a work. A work is um, performers trying to con marks to get money out of them. So the the audience in wrestling are called marks, just like they are at the carnival, because wrestling is a carnival, right? (laughs) And so the performers are trying to utilize what's called kayfabe, which is, again, the kind of the internal logic of wrestling where, you know, we're wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're going to try and make you believe that I actually hate this guy, even though we're going to drive to the next town together after this event um, and probably take <laughs> loads of mus- muscle relaxants. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that is, so, so that's what's called a work. A shoot is when it's real. And so. Um, so sorry, would that be S-H-O-O-T shoot or C-H-U-T yeah, shoot? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, like shooting a gun. Okay, so, okay. So as, as some, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin says, it uh, doesn't matter if you're at work and you shoot, shooting a work or just shooting a damn book. <laughs> exactly. And the, 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 the thing is that sometimes what you want to do is take a shoot and turn it into a work, i.e. two guys really hate each other backstage. So then let's put that in front of the screen and make some money out of this thing. But then sometimes also a work becomes a shoot where two guys who don't hate each other are talking as though they hate each other. 
on screen to sell tickets and sell merchandise and all the rest of it. But then someone's feelings or whatever, their their pressure point gets pushed. And then all of a sudden, the work becomes a shoot. Yeah. And then there are, I, like, it's not a, a binary. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a spectrum. And so we can go from work on one side to shoot on the other. And it goes, you know, things can be more worky and things can be more shooty and all the rest of it. But if you watch wrestling long enough, <laughs> you tend to become, again, theme of the podcast, very skeptical that anybody, anything is real. That everybody is a fraud and a liar, and they're all a bit, um, they all have a very tenuous relationship to veracity and truthfulness in general, all these wrestlers and performers. Because again, like to be clear, they are carnival workers. That's what they do. They con marks for money, including me, by the way, just (laughs) in case there's any doubt. Have I emptied my bank account in the name of this carny business? Yes, I have. Um, (laughs) So... There's always this question, um, is what I'm watching real? And usually you hit kind of payola with the fans when you can make people suspend their disbelief. Because we all know that what we're watching is fake, but we don't want to focus on that. We want to focus on the in-ring action, the personalities, the emotional, uh, the emotion of the storytelling, all this kind of stuff. That's what we want to care about. So um, if you can make people doubt that the work they're watching might actually be a shoot, you'll usually, you're onto something in terms of pay. And so when people are uh, making money, I should say, when people watch the Montreal Screwjob and think about it or whatever, there's a huge debate over where did the shoot begin, for one? Is it all a shoot? And the conspiracy is that it was all a work. That Bret Hart was not, in fact, mad at Vince McMahon afterwards, <laughs> that he was in on it the whole time, and that then when, let's say, after the after the match, Bret Hart like trashed the area around the ring, destroyed a bunch of TV monitors. He gave Vince McMahon the finger. He gave Vince McMahon a, a spat in his face, the most outrageous green thick loogie oh. you've ever seen. <laughs> he he gestured to the camera. He did the WCW in, in, with his finger. And he went backstage. And there was all sorts of more shenanigans. The whole locker room kind of split in two. Some people supporting Vince and Shawn Michaels, other people supporting Bret. And Bret, uh, Vince McMahon went into the locker room of Bret Hart to see could he sort things out. And uh, Bret said, I'm going in for a shower. And if you're still here when I get out, I'm going to knock your lights out. Oh, and so the legend goes that he came out of the shower, buck naked in his bare ass, and clocked Vince McMahon right in the face, gave him a black eye and knocked him out cold. And so they and there you will have people, none none of whom who are credible, but again, people who are carny <laughs> carny workers who can't tell the difference between truth and reality, they will swear to you that all of this was done to work the marks. And which, so it's which this, is the this, audience, the audience. Yes. Yeah. But also at some point, if you're going to work the audience, you have to also Again, to use wrestling parlance, work the boys. You have to make sure that the locker room also doesn't know what's a shoot and what's a work. Wow. Yeah. I, I was going to say, um, now we're, we're kind of recording this over Zoom and we've got our video on. And and you, you, your eyes are mostly up at the ceiling. Like this is just coming out of your <laughs> brain. Like you're not, is he like this all the time, Ken? Because this is impressive. Like this is just, he's far too deep into anything. this world, you see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're not reading anything. This is the, yeah. I'd have to kind of be following a script and like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
Sorry, sorry, Donald. Where where do you kind of come down on on you know where does the shoot begin or? So, it becomes a work, but only in the aftermath. So okay. what they do is, kind of by accident, but then very deliberately, is they capitalize on the fact that the fans have overwhelmingly taken Brett's side in the aftermath of all this. And oh, is there is there an extra an, an extra emotional element to Bret Hart to this happening in Montreal because of Bret Hart's background good, as a Canadian? Good, good question. Yes, yeah, so this is this is excellent uh, excellent intervention, Kian. I'll get to this real quick <laughs> because it is very very important. So throughout the year 1997, Bret Hart developed kind of an innovative character where he was a good guy or a babyface in Canada, but a heel or a bad guy in the United States. And the essence of his character was he would say that Americans were retrograde and reprobates and they were, you know, callous and disgusting. And he was kind of directing a lot of this energy towards the emerging Stone Cold Steve Austin character, who was a kind of an anti-authority, redneck, badass dude. And then also at Shawn Michaels and his faction, Degeneration X. And so it's kind of, you know, like America's that's very strong kind of patriotic things that, you know, it's not hard to get wrestling fans to chant USA. If you come out right. in the flag, you know, you're automatically a good guy and stuff. And a lot of the time, Americans don't realize that like that doesn't necessarily play well in the rest of the world. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but what Bret Hart did was he started to kind of play up the anti America side of things while emphasizing very strongly the pro Canada thing. Cause Bret Hart has always been very, solidly and resolutely identified with with um with canada he comes from like kind of wrestling aristocracy really in the sense that his father ran a promotion out of calgary called stampede wrestling that would have gone around you know uh all the all the kind of other towns in in um i would say alberta saskatchewan maybe the the bc interior kind of those kinds of places and they ran for years and years and years and uh Many of Bret Hart's brothers were also wrestlers, including the late, great Owen Hart. And uh, all the Bret sisters married wrestlers. So like Bret Hart's early tag team partner, Jim DeAnvil Neinhart. He was married to one of Bret's sisters. The British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, was married to one of uh, Bret's sisters, etc., etc. Anyway, so he's really, 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 really strongly identified with Canada. And the during the year of 1997, the WWF goes up to Canada for a whole bunch of shows because they're losing what was called the Monday Night Wars to WCW, right? Where on a Monday night, uh, the two wrestling shows, WCW Nitro and WWF Raw, would go head-to-head in a ratings battle. And the WWF got its ass kicked in the ratings for famously 83 weeks in a row. And so in 1996 and 1997, they had lost a lot of money. And they were really capitalizing on Brett's popularity in Canada and actually in the rest of the world too. Bret Hart was a big time uh, ratings and uh, live attendance draw in Europe and in other countries like South Africa, for example, they did like crazy attendance at South Africa shows in 1996 mainly. And Brett was the main draw huge in Germany, France, these kinds of things. And so one of the things that really stuck in Brett's craw about this kind of really, really uh, personal animus that himself and Shawn Michaels developed was that 
the idea of having to lose the belt, right, the championship belt to Shawn Michaels in Canada was very problematic to him. Mm-hmm. So there was it was a it was I don't want to lose the belt to you because I hate you personally. And then B, I don't want to lose it in Canada because um, these fans are very important mm-hmm. to me. I'm considered a hero here. And I mean, I don't know how you would think about this, Carl, as someone who's maybe not the most diehard wrestling fan, but like there was um, a poll done maybe in the early 2000s. It was kind of like the greatest Canadian. It was kind of like, no. you know, Terry Fox, Tommy Douglas, Bret Hart kind of thing. Wow. <laughs> that's that's wow. astounding, actually. Uh, at one point in time, maybe not so much now. I would say still in Calgary. I would right, say, right. It's, I'd imagine he's still a folk hero in Calgary. Um, and here, like, you know, maybe because of the association of Montreal through the screw job and stuff like that, you know, everybody knows Bret Hart. He's very, very, very well known. Um, probably not as well known as Hulk Hogan or The Rock by, you know, like, mm-hmm. just their cultural power is higher, but certainly Bret Hart, definitely, you know, up there in terms of names that Canadians have off the the top of their tongue, kind of. Would it be more so even than Andre the Giant, who was, he was um, French-Canadian, wasn't he? No, Andre lived in Montreal, but he was from Grenoble in France. Oh, But uh, Andre, like, kind of, when he he wrestled in Europe, and then he came over and he he worked out of Montreal for a long time, and he actually had a restaurant which was, it, it was on uh, Mackay Street, downtown Montreal, which is right next to Concordia University, where I work. So, kind of cool. But, um, yeah, the Canadian angle is very important. And the other thing is, again, it was also that he, Brett personally hated Sean. And uh, he they had been fighting all year, including, like, a big tussle backstage where, where Brett ripped some of Sean's hair out of his head. They had a big fight. Um, mainly over comments that Sean made in the ring uh, suggesting that Bret Hart was having an affair with one of the female performers on the roster. There was a, um, there was a performer called Sonny, and uh, Sean Michael said, oh, Bret, I hear you're having some sunny ways, um, which is, that's a kind of a, that's a shoot within a work kind of thing. So if you know what you're, if you know what you're listening for, you know that that's like a devastating cut, but if you're just a regular Dumb mark, like let's say I would have been at the time as a as a as a kid watching. Uh, you've no clue what the hell that means. But so Brett heard that he knew exactly what it meant. He was pissed off, and they went. They had a physical altercation, a bit of a tussle, and yeah. So Brett ripped out some of Sean's hair, and so there's all this kind of stuff going on. But they had a meeting in the ring in September, so this would have been uh, three ish months before the actual screw job goes down, and. Brett said, look, Sean, I don't like you. You don't like me. And I'm on my way out of the territory because there was a deal that he had made with Vince the year before where Vince McMahon said, I'm going to pay you 10 million over over, uh, 20 years. And you're going to retire in the next couple of years. You're going to be 40 soon enough. But you can stay on as a coach and as a worker in the back, you know, like someone who's going to be involved in the creative and things like this. And so later that year, then Vince said to Brett, I can't honor that deal because uh, we're getting our asses handed to us in the ratings and we're, we're, you know, we're on the down and out, we're on the skids. So you should go talk to WCW and see, can you get a better deal from them? 
So Sean says, or sorry, Brett says to Sean in a meeting in September of 1997, I'm on my way out of here. I have Vince reneged on the agreement we had. I've done a deal with uh, with Eric Bischoff, who was the uh, vice president of um, WCW. I've done a deal with him. I'm on my way out. So we're going to wrestle in November in Montreal. And I just want to let you know that I will um, take care of you. I'm not going to hurt you. You're safe in the ring with me. And I will do the honors, i.e. I'll go down for you. You can pin me one, two, three, and uh, we we can leave here as professionals on good terms. And Shawn Michaels said to him, well, I appreciate you saying that, but I just need you to know that I wouldn't do the same for you. <laughs> so then Brett said, right, well, stick it up your ass. Consider all of that revoked. And I will work with you. I'm not going to hurt you because I value my professionalism and my reputation as a safe worker. But there's absolutely no chance that I am going down um, and losing to you in front of Canadian fans. That I'll go down to you somewhere else or I'll go down to someone else and they can get the belt and then you can beat them while I'm on my way out. But there's absolutely, now that you've said that, no way, no way, no way. So what Brett proposed and wanted was that he would beat Shawn Michaels in Montreal, or there could be what's sometimes called, am I allowed to curse? Yeah, of course. Okay, lovely. <laughs> or I like, to say, fu- I like to say, fuck yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what's sometimes called a fuck finish, okay. which is a kind of like, um, you know, something happens and the match doesn't end, like a no contest. So what Brett had proposed was some other people come out to the ring and there's an interference and what sometimes gets called a schmoz where just like everybody's on top of each other, big brawl, and the ref goes over to the timekeeper and waves it off. They're, oh, we can't finish, we can't finish. And the commentators talk about, oh, it's chaos, it's madness, we were hoping for a finish, but it's just too wild and rowdy in here. Whatever. And then Brett said his he would go to, this was on a, the pay-per-view is always on a Sunday night, so then they have the follow-up TV show on Monday, and they were, they were going to go to Ottawa, and Brett would go out in Ottawa and say, I beat Sean last night, it's a shame that I couldn't pin him, but you all saw who was the true honorable competitor, and then they all sing all Canada or whatever. And then he would lay down the, the the title and say, like, I rescind my belt, and I just want to thank you, fans. It's been wonderful, and, I'm, you know, I'm getting on my horse, traveling to the next town, going off to WCW. And the idea behind the necessity, the perceived necessity of the screw job was that you couldn't trust Brett to do that. And that what he might do is was if he was allowed to leave the what was then called the Molson Center, what is now the Bell Center in downtown Montreal. If he was allowed to leave that event with the belt, he could instead of going to Ottawa for Monday Night Raw, he could go to uh, Philadelphia, maybe. I'm just riffing off the top of my head. I could be wrong there. But he would go instead to Nitro and bring the WWF belt to WCW's TV show which would be like the ultimate kind of like, what the fuck? Which would draw all the eyes onto Nitro. It would show that it was decisively the winner in this, you know, very competitive wrestling war. And it would just be the most unbelievable gotcha. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that wasn't going to happen. Brett was going to be under contract to WWF until early December. So another couple of weeks. Plus, Eric Bischoff had allowed Brett to work the December 12th WWF pay-per-view to drop the title there, because it wouldn't be in Canada, 
to Shawn Michaels instead of Survivor Series if that was what was needed. So basically, his WCW contract would kick in but not actually apply until after the next WWF event. So there was a huge, big kind of release valve available to stop Brett from doing the ultimate kind of shit heel thing of Mm -hmm. stealing the belt and taking it to the competitor. Plus, in 1991, Ric Flair left WCW as champion and went to WWF. Ric Flair, the nature boy, one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time. He left WCW, went to WF, and he took the belt with him. And it was a big get, and it was a big coup, and it was all the things that it would have been if Brett tried to do this in 1997. But WCW successfully sued, um, claiming that the belt was their intellectual copyright. That the belt is not just a physical object, it is, you know, IP protected by law. And they won that suit. WWF had to pay um, in court. And every time that the footage was shown after the fact, they would digitally block out the belt because we're not allowed to show this. It's not ours. So there was a, there was legal precedent to say that Bret Hart couldn't do this. There was um, actually contractual barriers to him doing this. And the possibility of anything even within the vicinity of this happening had been identified in advance, and there had been measures taken to make it favorable on the WWF side to make sure that an arrangement that was agreeable to Bret Hart vis-a-vis Shawn Michaels, the belt, the Canadian angle, all of that stuff would be kind of neutralized. So the people who defend kind of Vince McMahon's perception that we absolutely had to get the belt off of Bret mm-hmm. that night. There was no way to get him to agree to lose because he hated Shawn Michaels so much. He was so um, proud of his connection to Canada, the Canadian fans, that he would never agree to lose to someone he hated in Canada, that the only way to take the belt off him was by doing a screw job. Wow, okay. That's the whole angle there. Now, in the sense of what is a shoot versus what is a work, after all this goes down, people are confused. They don't understand. And Vince McMahon goes on TV to say that this was all desperately necessary. And he's kind of speaking in slightly coded language because he doesn't want to come out and say, listen, you idiots, this is all (laughs) fake. But he wants to talk about time-honored tradition uh, on your way out of the territory, these kinds of um, these uh, slightly coded phrases. But what he's trying to do is babyface himself, as they say in wrestling. He's trying to make himself sound like a good guy. But he's basically coming across like a complete shithead, like self-absorbed, narcissistic, megalomaniacal. And he famously says at the end of this, it's like a sit down interview. He's wearing like this uh, ridiculous uh, suit jacket with massive shoulder pads, as he would always wear. And he says, Vince McMahon didn't screw Brett. Brett screwed Brett. And so this becomes a very famous line. Uh, connected to the screw job. And again, Vince McMahon thinks that what he's doing is explaining his side of the story such that the audience will empathize with and side with him. Instead, what he's doing is saying, I'm a big shithead. And here's why I did what I did. And now you hate me even more. Now, Vince is um, self-absorbed and narcissistic. But at that time, at least, not so much now, 
at that time, he was very much guided by what's best for business creatively, as well as in terms of dollars and cents. And he realized relatively quickly after this that he was completely wrong and that he had, in fact, given not a baby face, but a heel promo. Heel is a bad guy. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they transferred all of the energy from the fans out over the screw job into Vince McMahon being the bad guy, deflecting the good guy energy from Bret Hart. He's not even on Nitro yet because his contract doesn't kick in until mid-December. And so the fans are going crazy, wild. What's going on? What's real? What's fake? What's real? What's fake? And meanwhile, the action is playing out on WWF TV where Vince McMahon has initially unwittingly and then in calculated form presenting himself as the arch evil of wrestling. And then... At the same time, while Bret Hart is having a really good year in 1997 doing his pro-Canada, anti-US stuff, Stone Cold Steve Austin is becoming the redneck, anti-authoritarian, badass ass kicker. (laughs) And what they do is they tell the story where Stone Cold Steve Austin is the anti-authority babyface versus Vince McMahon, the maniacal heel, who's such a shithead that he screwed Bret Hart in Canada in front of his, you know, beloved fans. (laughs) And so WWF... At the end of 1997, because of the screw job and this, the cleverness with which they ca- uh, capitalize on Vince McMahon and Stone Cold Steve Austin, starts to gain momentum. And in April of 1998, they defeat WCW in the ratings for the first time. So it takes a while, but the momentum grows, right? Snowball mm. effect and all of that. Um, in April 98, they win the ratings war for the first time in 83 weeks. They never lose it again. And in 2001, they buy WCW. Famously. So they complete and and Bret Hart goes on to have many, many awful, awful, awful years. Not just his brother Owen falling to his death uh, in the Kansas City um, over the edge pay-per-view in 1999, but almost all of his relatives in the wrestling business die of a whole array of maladies connected to the business from drug abuse and steroid abuse and things like that. But his family gets split over the screw job because mm. some of them want to stay on Vince McMahon's good side because he's the he is the the ATM of the wrestling business, and some of them are more loyal to the yeah. to the Almighty Dollar than to their own family. Then the family gets split over Owen's death and who's to blame over all that. Mm. Bret Hart himself gets kicked in the head by Goldberg at the Starcade 1999 pay per view, suffers a concussion that ultimately ends his wrestling career. He also falls off his bike in 2002 and has a terrible stroke and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, so it's like Vince McMahon is goes from strength to strength to strength by being a shithead. And Brent, Bret Hart, who was, I think, by, the, by all credible accounts, uh, was a combination of principled and noble and... A righteous shithead in the sense right. that, like, was, you know, he was a bit rigid and, and, um, and maybe he took him himself, his character, his connection to Canada a bit too seriously. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, nobody who ever made a buck in wrestling did so because they didn't take their character, their relationship to the fans seriously. Like, right. when people poo on Brett for this kind of stuff, they say, oh, he was a mark for himself. Right. Basically, he was the, you know, the leader of his own fan club. It's like, well, you kind of have to be or else. Why would you get out of bed in the morning or why would you convince <laughs> other people to put their butt in the seat as the, the phrase goes? 
So I would say like Brett was a bit, you know, intractable on the issues that he thought were important. But you kind of have to be sometimes. Whereas the stuff that Shawn Michaels was intractable on, uh, and maybe I'm using the wrong term there, but like, you know, again, unmovable, let's say. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's shitty. It was shitty at the time and it's shitty in uh, in retrospect. And Shawn Michaels admits that. He had a big kind of, uh, he was a, a big pain in the ass to deal with for for years and years and years in wrestling. And then he he found God and apologized and all the rest of it. And and Vince McMahon still has never never changed his basic position on all of this. And the WWE, as it is now, has such a kind of a stronghold on um stranglehold, sorry, on mm-hmm. the wrestling business, they can just pump out the narrative that suits their version of events, such that like every couple of years they make an in-house documentary or, or something like that on the Montreal screw job, and then all of the wrestling news sites have to do their debunkers and here's the stuff they didn't mention over and over and over again. This is the origin of oh, Vince's like bad business, evil businessman character, which was a mainstay of what people might remember from the at what was called the attitude era, like the like maybe the second time since the 1980s that wrestling went really mainstream. And so even people who aren't interested will remember kind of the rock and stone cold and, and Mick Foley as mankind in the years between about 1999 and the early 2000s, I suppose. Yeah, and that's the Vince character. That was the major foil to Vince. Uh, sorry, mm, major foil to, to Stone Cold. Stone Cold was yeah. involved in a lot of the ascent and rise of the Rock. That yeah. was only possible because they capitalized on that interview that Vince gave to the direct to the camera, where he said Brett screwed Brett, where he thought he was being a good guy, but actually he was being a bad guy. And again, they capitalized on that. And like this, th- this screw job finish becomes just. Like it goes into lore immediately. Mm. And so, like, on the one year anniversary of the screw job, so this would be Survivor Series 1998, they do the finish again, except this time it's, uh, it's a worked shoot. Right. <laughs> so, the first time it was a real shoot where Brett didn't really know what was happening. This was not agreed upon. He was really mad. He actually kind of got screwed over. Then the one year anniversary when they do it again it's a character turning who was a good guy turning heel and joining up with vince mcmahon's evil corporation stable <laughs> so they they literally went back to the uh went back to the trough a second time but... and 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 that was like that was the time that they replicated the screw job and people went oh that was good they have done it 15 times or something since then like the the Re- trough wrestling it, is very meta the, isn't it it is, yeah. But because the trough, like the we said, none of the characters can, <laughs> someone can't tell what's real and what's not. Hulk Hogan has no idea whether Hulk Hogan is a real person or or, or what, what has happened to him in his life. They can't they can't tell the difference. Some of them. This is this is like the like you know in, in Star Trek, it's always like you know when ratings start to to sort of flag, they 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 bring back a big time travel arc. This sort of yep. seems to be the 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 wrestling version of that. <laughs> yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah. Um, and the the trough is dry, like there is nothing in the trough, and yet they just keep shoving their head in into the metal, and um, breaking their noses and you know scraping their chin. <laughs> uh, but like, and people generally like if if you ask a wrestling fan, like a diehard wrestling fan, someone who can just kind of like spill out the information the way I'm doing so now, if you ask them about M- Montreal, they'll 
kind of roll their eyes and sigh more so than mm-hmm. go into all the detail that I'm doing now because it's 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 still kind of fascinating in a lot of ways, but it's so played out. It's unbelievably played out. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because they keep making documentaries about it and they keep having people say stupid lies about it. Like, you know, there's a the Vice made a TV show called Dark Side of the Ring. Mm, yeah. Which is worth checking out. And they did an episode on the Montreal screw job. But sometimes these shows, you know, you just have to get talking heads who have status and reputation. And in wrestling, that means that you're getting like carnies who have been really successful in, you know, selling, (laughs) selling tickets to the shell game at the carnival. So like you put a camera in front of them, they're going to lie to you. It's what they do. And uh, to Kean's point, sometimes they don't know they're lying because they've told a lie for decades or whatever. But they had Scott Hall on, who died relatively recently. So I guess I'll give that RIP and caveat before I take a dump on him here. He would be better known as Razor Ramon. But he w- he's interviewed on this Dark Side of the, the Ring episode about the Montreal Screwjob. And he, and he says to the camera, oh, the whole thing is a work. The whole thing is a work. It's all fake. Everybody was in on it. Brett was in on it. First of all, you weren't there. So you don't know that. But second of all, like, no, that's just not true. You're just mm-hmm. lying because either because you just like you want some notoriety or you want to be the one who says the like crazy thing on the interview or whatever. But it's just these people, they don't they cannot stop themselves. They can't help themselves, I think, would be a good way to put it as well. Um, But, yeah, it's there's there's it's it's played out to death, even though it's it, it's really interesting. And like what I would say is if you want to kind of interact with this with this story uh the best way to do so is to watch a documentary that was released called uh wrestling with shadows it's a canadian made documentary by a director called paul j and it was released like i think the year afterwards maybe 1998 but it just so happened that bret hart had a camera crew follow him around the uh year leading up to the screw job just as it happened and they got tons of footage of backstage in montreal that night all the different people interacting and like you see vince mcmahon being carried out of the locker room on two wrestlers shoulders after bret hart punched his lights out while oh. he was naked so this that wasn't maybe just part of the story there is some there is some evidence that suggests he, he did get get clocked absolutely so and and you know what bret hart was uh, wearing a wire for some of the uh, conversation that mm. he had with Vince in and around the whole event while they were trying to, because it was a lot of like frantic, this you know debate, discussion, negotiation on both sides in the in the kind of day or two, especially leading up to it, because there was a lot of tension about what the finish should be, what can we convince people to go along with, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and Brett was wearing a wire in some for the for the movie purposes for some uh, events that I think the other people didn't know, you know, were going to be recorded. Um, so we actually have like meaningfully primary mm. documentary evidence on this stuff. And even still, people are just like, no, we want to talk nonsense about this e- again, either because just they like conspiracies and, and this is the conspiracy in wrestling that will not die. But then. On the other side of it, again, like I said, some of these people they could not uh, discern fact from fiction if they were if their lives lives depended on it. 
Oh, that's interesting. The um, yeah, I, I mean, I remember um, you sort of reading when I was sort of doing my research into this. You know, the the you know the whole idea of the belt, right? You know that that you know we, we you can't take the belt to the competing league, and you know he will, you know he will, you know, despoil it in a satanic ceremony before viewer. You know, I, I I but I didn't actually ever encounter that that thing that like no no that you know there there is there is some, there's some IP law actually on on that. That that's 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 quite fascinating. A, 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 a kind of a little aside. I mean, you you, you um, you Donald, you're, you're probably familiar with the Tim Hortons Canadian coffee donut chain. Certainly. Ken has any? Have you heard of Tim Hortons? I've been I've frequented a few Tims in my time. Yes, I have. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, Tim Horton was a hockey player, and uh, he played most of his life with both the Maple Leafs and the Buffalo Sabers. So for a long time, Tim Horton's donut shop always had a picture of Tim Horton in his Maple Leaf uh, jersey, and then eventually the Maple Leafs were like, you know, that's our trademark. You can't you can't just have the maple leaf trademark, you know, hanging in all your restaurants. So Tim Horton is like, Tim Horton's corporation is like, well, okay. Then the Buffalo Sabres kind of stepped up and they're like, we'll cut you a deal. We would love to have the Buffalo Sabres jersey in every single coffee shop in Toronto, Hamilton. You know, that would be a huge coup for us. And uh, and then the Maple Leafs kind of came back and they're like, Oh, okay. We can cut a deal. So, so yeah, very interesting. Sometimes that, that, you know, that's a whole other book, sports IP, crazy sports IP tales or something, but, but wow. Yeah. Wow. When it, when it comes to the belt in wrestling, one of the things that's funny about it is that, um, you know, again, supposed learned minds on this stuff would tell you that a belt is a prop mm-hmm. and that the wrestler makes the belt rather than the belt making the wrestler. So if you give the belt to a crappy wrestler, the belt is meaningless. Or if you switch the belt all the time, I win it, then I lose to you, you lose to Key and so on and so forth. Like if it's a hot potato, it means nothing. So you need to have a champion whose um, possession of the belt means something because they're atop the summit and you're hoping for challengers to, you know, rise up and then dethrone the champion, this kind of stuff. But you're not supposed to buy into the idea of the belt meaning something because this isn't like uh, an Olympic gold medal. You didn't win anything. You didn't beat anybody because this is not a legitimate athletic contest. This is entertainment, show business. Again, my preferred term is carnival. But So you're not supposed to be, like I said, you're not supposed to be a mark for yourself. You're not supposed to be a fan of yourself. You're not supposed to be a mark for the belt. Mm -hmm. And if you think that having the belt means something, well, I guess you're just a big baby who can't tell the difference between what's real and fake, just like those dumb fans in the crowd. And so, again, one of the reasons why some people would say, oh, Bret Hart is a is a is a dumbass for caring about any of this stuff is like, oh, he's not only a mark for himself, but he's also a mark for the belt. And yet at the same time, the the company is a mark for the belt since they don't want it on the other show. If the belt is just a toy, a trinket, um, something that um, is made by the man, the wrestler, rather than the belt making the man or the wrestler, well, then send this belt onto another show. What's the difference? Oh, wait, no, you don't want that. And in fact, there's legal precedent that that's not how it works. Right, Aha! Yeah. So it turns out maybe the belt does matter. And maybe the wrestlers who get to the top of the summit and make money in this business and do well for themselves and protect their legacies, maybe that's because they were A, a mark for themselves, themselves and B, a mark for the belt, because turns out giving a shit about the thing that you're supposed to give a shit about in a 
real athletic contest is what's going to make viewers emotionally invest in a fake athletic contest. Because again, when wrestling works well, it works along the same lines. Like, you know, if you're watching hockey or any other sport, it, you're not just watching like athletes do athletic stuff. You're invested in the personalities, the storylines. There's always a storyline, you know. Oh, he's, you know, we, he needs to have a big game because it, after three disappointing performances recently, if he might get dropped for the next big one, if he doesn't play well today, even simple stuff like that. It's all, all about emotionally investing. And why does this matter? Who are the people? Uh, are they on the up? Are they on the down? Who's the coach? You know, this kind of stuff. And wrestling works the same way. It's just that you can take it to the, you can take it to the next level in terms of like the emotional intensity of the stakes because you can have like, Sometimes really great, compelling stuff mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, you trash your opponent's car and then they really hate you. Or <laughs> you can do dumb stuff like one time in the Attitude Era, the a wrestler called The Big Show um, was having a funeral for his father. And another wrestler called The Big Boss Man came in a big truck and pulled the, the coffin out of the ground, attached it to his truck and drove off with it. While The Big Show ran after it and jumped on top of the <laughs> the coffin. And was pulled away on top of his father's coffin while the big boss man laughed out the window. It was a classic year. <laughs> so, a classic year. That's shit. <laughs> yes, that is. That is like the most successful. Yeah, there, and the most there are people who are deeply nostalgic for that time in yeah. wrestling. <laughs> Known as the uh, indignity to a human so, so, corpse era. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, it got uh, way worse than that. That's like, yeah. That's like, there was an episode where. Uh, a wrestler committed the ultimate indignity with the human corpse. If you can get where I'm going, I'm not making that up. The episode, it, the 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 vignette is surrounding someone called Katie Vick. If you look it up, listeners, you will regret it. But there's there's the information, so you can go and commit your own mistakes. I've got a question, which is like the 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 idea that all of this the screw job was was a work, right, and was planned. Now, we've established that they can't tell the difference between what's real anyway, and they will jump on something that was real and then begin to work it. Anyway, we've established that. Having said so, what is the biggest, like, the idea that this was a conspiracy of some sort, um, what was the biggest thing that was planned but was believed as being real, perhaps by the community at large? Like, what's the biggest, most unbelievable thing that they actually pulled off? And I'm going to say this was it's going to probably be something prior to the age of the internet because it's much harder to do this stuff now. It's harder to keep a secret now. Yeah. Is there anything I, really outrageous that they actually pulled off that turned out to be a work that people, that it wasn't well known previous to the screw job. So not yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, exclusive yeah. of the Montreal screw job. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'd say probably like the, the thing that got the, the, the audience guessing the most was uh, a, a kind of an industry um changing storyline in WCW, which was around a faction called the New World Order, the NWO. Yes. And this was started off by uh, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, who were previously uh wrestlers for WWF, one called Diesel, the other called Razor Ramon, who I mentioned earlier on. And they came to WCW kind of in, in any way that one person would move from one company to another. But the way that they debuted, they walked through the crowd as though they weren't officially part of the roster, they just start, like interrupted matches and they started talking directly to the camera in ways that made it sound like they were invading WCW from WWF as like a hostile takeover from the other side. 
And as this played out, it inevitably became completely obvious that this was just a wrestling storyline. But they were able to kind of keep the air of intrigue going long enough that there was a strong degree of questioning, like how much of this is real? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of this is scripted? Or do they really work for WCW or not? And that's even if it was it wasn't something at a kind of like a grand level of uh, artifice or anything like that. But it transformed the business, made a ton of money. It was the engine that kicked off this uh, attitude era that we mentioned earlier on. And so I would say, like, the NWO storyline the, was the greatest worked shoot ever. Most of the time, though, worked shoots are awful. They're just terrible. Because um, you have to, like, Ian was talking about how the internet and all that. When they start talking about, like, I heard what you said on Twitter, you know, like, oh, and they start, you know, cu- cutting promos in the ring talking about, like, you know, you you come out here and tell the fans that you're a good person. I saw that you know you were you had an Instagram photo with sex workers, like this kind of stuff. Like, just <laughs> no thanks. No. <laughs> and no. don't they they have big problems with guys like who are supposed to keep kayfabe, like keep to the storylines, and like oh you know this guy is my rival, and then they're hitting the gym together and putting that on Instagram. Oh yeah, sure, listen, so much more difficult days, to keep the, yeah, keep up these, the, the facade. These days, it's completely gone. Like, you have dudes who will have a big epic match with each other, and then the next week, they'll be on a podcast talking about how they put it together, you know? Right. Um, and they it's go to a lot of effort, didn't they, too? Like, was it in contracts and stuff that they had to behave a certain way outside of the ring? And Yeah, like, there was a promoter called Bill Watts. He ran the, uh, the, the Mid-South Territory. This would have been in kind of like Oklahoma, Louisiana, those places in the southern U.S. And his... Uh, his kind of diktat was like it was a fireable offense if anybody made you look weak in public. So that means that if like you're out drinking in a bar or something comes up and says, I heard that you wrestlers are phony baloney, like you have to then kick the fucking shit wow. out of that guy. You absolutely you have to break a beer bottle <laughs> over his head and you have to go and go to jail. Like if that's wow. now in theory, in theory, the sheriff should go up to you and shake your hands and say and say, God, you're one tough son of a bitch. I respect you <laughs> because this is the South in the 70s after all. But, you know. Uh, like the idea is like you're a legit badass and like in the 80s the Iron Sheik and Hacksaw Jim Duggan got pulled over for speeding on the side of the road and turned out they had a whole bunch of drugs in the car and they got fired for w- for from WWF not for speeding not for drugs but because they were feuding with each other at the time and they're not allowed to be seen in public together so you can drive on the highway at 3am because it's dark and there's nobody around who knows who's in the car but now that it's in the newspaper that these two guys got arrested together because mm. they are socializing, fraternizing, and traveling together, well, that shows that our whole business is is fake and all the rest of it. But then on the other side, while Vince McMahon is putting those kinds of rules into effect for his talent, he was also in court, state by state by state across the United States, mm. saying, I don't have to pay um, athletic commissions to regulate my sport because my sport is not a sport, it's entertainment. <laughs> and right. he like so like the, at that same time there was like actually court transcripts that were saying that you would have Vince McMahon on the record saying like we are not sports we are sports entertainment. It's the Alex Jones custody trial argument. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We made this we made this exact connection on, on the show ages ago when we we compared it to Hulk Hogan's various trial uh, appearances where he had to like come out and say that Hulk Hogan is a fictional character right. um, and Terry Balea, his real name is a real person. And Donald, what was the exact point upon which he, um, <laughs> he managed to split this, these, these characters. 
Yeah, so this was about the, you might recall the Gawker trial where Hulk Hogan, mm-hmm. funded by Peter Thiel, everybody's, uh, I hope, least favorite democracy-hating libertarian nightmare. Um, <laughs> he funded Hulk Hogan's trial against Gawker, where Hulk Hogan was uh, surreptitiously filmed having sex. Um, and he said a whole bunch of racist things in the process. Um, and that video was put up on the Gawker website. Hulk Hogan claimed that it violated his privacy and he ultimately won and put Gawker out of business. Uh, but in the in the uh, actual trial itself, there were <laughs> questions asked about like what was Hulk Hogan saying and how could it be understood to be true or not. And they were asking him whether or not things he had said on the radio show of the husband of the woman who he was having sex with in the video were true or not, including saying that he had a 10 inch penis. And so he was bragging <laughs> on the on the radio show that Hulk Hogan had a 10 inch penis. And the uh, the counselor was saying to him, like, you know, is it true that you said this? And he said, yes, I said it. And he said, is it true? Like the thing that you said, is it true? And he said, well, it's true that Hulk Hogan has a 10 inch penis. And he says, well, does that mean you have a 10 inch penis? And he said, no. Why not? Well, because I'm not Hulk Hogan. Who are you? <laughs> I'm, I, 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 I'm Terry Balea. All right. OK. So does Terry Balea have a 10 inch penis? No. But Hulk Hogan does. Yes. <laughs> Who's Hulk Hogan? I'm Hulk Hogan. <laughs> so this is now like sovereign citizens or free men on the land types in court, right? <laughs> That's certainly what Peter Thiel wants. So are you John Smith? No. Then who are you? I'm John Smith. Yeah. You know, but not John Smith Corporation. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, But it's like, you know, Terry Bollea plays Hulk Hogan. But Terry Bollea isn't Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan has a 10-inch penis. Terry Bollea <laughs> doesn't have a 10-inch penis. But Terry Bollea plays Hulk Hogan, who has a 10-inch right. penis. Well, this, wasn't this, this followed this... up with, uh, who am I speaking to now? <laughs> yes, yes. That's, it ended with, who am I speaking to now? So, well, right now you're speaking to Terry Bollea. It's part of a transcript. Court transcript. <laughs> yes, it's, it, it is, in fact, in the transcript. But they don't, they have no, they, you know, they don't, they can't tell the difference between who they are, who they play, right. what's real, what isn't. And again, like, at some point, because... The mythos of your wrestling character is so important to, uh, you know, your success as a performer. You have to live the gimmick, as they would say in the wrestling business. Um, but that means then that you can't live as yourself. That's one of the reasons why, like, it's kind of, I mean, look, I have a pro-Canadian bias. Let's be clear about that. But it's easy to take Bret Hart's side in the screw job because he didn't play that much of a character. His character was that he was really good at wrestling. And that's not hard to play because he was a superb wrestler. And, you know, part of the character also was that he lived and breathed wrestling, which he did because his father was a promoter and that he was like, you know, the really good wrestler from Calgary, from the wrestling family. So it's like, you know, obviously it's all dialed up to 11. And, you know, I don't want to make it sound like Brett isn't a carny and a worker because, of course, like there's no way, you know, you can't swim in shit and come out smelling nice. It's just not how it works. Um but it's easier to believe him than some of the other far more exaggerated characters where the difference between the person and the gimmick is considerably more stratified. Yeah, there's the, this reminds me of that meme, the um, you know man who votes for uh, tigers will eat your face party upset tigers ate his face. I mean, the to to you know to be part of a group that you know basically is a conspiracy at the end of the day 
small group of people in a small smoky room deciding on your future then mm-hmm. be upset you are the victim you know, of, of of that conspiracy is is at, at some point is you know complaining about you know i voted for the tiger eat my face party it ain't my face you know yeah yeah i think i think to some degree the the positive spin on criticizing brett for being a mark for the belt and a mark for his character and all that is that you can't invest any optimism, hope, or expectation of nobility or honor in a system that's, again, fundamentally fraudulent, mm-hmm. populated by liars, knaves, cowards, etc. And that's kind of like the, you know, I I really thought that the leopards wouldn't eat my face kind of thing. It's like, you know, if your job is to work people, at some point you're going to get work too. Mm-hmm. Um, a, bit, a bit like the old, some days you're the hammer, some days you're the nail. Like, eventually you're going to get worked um mm-hmm. and the thing is like one of the, one of the, one of the, you know it's this this word screw job mm-hmm. which has become so kind of connected to this whole incident with Bret Hart Shawn Michaels and Superman etc like a screw job is a type of finish that they do in wrestling matches like it is a it's where uh you know someone loses but because their opponent cheated in order mm-hmm. to create heat where the crowd you know is angry at the heel and 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 wants retribution for the baby face. And so like what's so um like emblematic of wrestling as something that can you can never quite divine genuine truth from it is that like this is the screw job that was a real screw job. But mm-hmm. we don't have a different term for it than the average screw job, which is a fake screw job. <laughs> wow. If you know what I mean. Yeah. All right. We, we should we should probably wrap up. I think that's a good it's a good note to to, to end on. And um um uh Donal, you um you I mean other than sometimes being on your brother's podcast, do you do you have anything to promote or you you're just you're just kind of you're 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 the man behind the man behind the man. Uh something like that. And my my day job is I teach political science at okay. uh Dawson College and Concordia University here in Montreal. So despite all the evidence to the contrary. I am a respectable contributor to society. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> um, so yeah, in my day job, I don't I don't talk wrestling. I talk politics. But uh, unfortunately, the the thesis that I'm increasingly leaning into is that uh, the difference between the two worlds is uh, far less than we should we should have. Beauty. Hey, and Kian, you know, Kian, I always want to. Um ask you i i and i i i debated bringing a beer onto this podcast but i'm kind of like well it's you know 11 a.m my time you know if i was up at the cottage i'd be on my second one but you know but uh you most of your podcasts you start with a, a like a beer you're enjoying a beer um uh no question here it's more of just like whenever you tell me the beer you're drinking i'm like i hate my life here in ontario you can't get great beers here um uh, does that make you feel better? Yeah, it's it's okay. It's uh, <laughs> I suppose it's I'm still a 2008 hipster in my head. Somewhere, so, uh, <laughs> I, I have that character anyway on the show, so uh, it's uh, not quite enough here. It's just here at the moment, and um, you know, apart from that, it's just whatever's left in the fridge. Great. Okay. All right then. Okay. So we we should we should wrap up. Uh, th- thank you. Thank you so much, uh, um, uh, uh, Donald, for for coming on. I know you're you're kind of a 
a newish father so that's um time is always precious you know with the you know carve out you know an hour and a half away from because you know kids grow up and this is precious time you know you know yeah it's uh it, my wife is the one who deserves the thanks on that one because uh i left her with the baby this morning so <laughs> Exactly. You want to do what? Talk about what? <laughs> no. Again? Again. <laughs> Again. No, yeah. Yeah. I know. Been there. Done that. <laughs> All right. And, and Kian, thank you so much. And in your podcast again. Yeah. yeah, so um, it's White Atlantic Weird, and uh, you, you find it in all the usual places where you get podcasts. Great. Okay. All right. So have a good have a good uh, day and evening uh, for you all. Bye bye. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. For another big day. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling.